0: Morning. 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 My name is Pastor Daniel, um, one of the executive pastors here. Um, welcome to Res. About know, four or five, six weeks ago, something like that, uh, after just some some conversations in one of our executive meetings, I was just, I, I had felt like a, a growing uh, conviction that God wanted me to uh, preach on giving and generosity. And, and it's just, I guess I'd come to this realization that it had been a long time since we had taught about it. Um, and, it, and it's really by by percentiles one of the one of the big subjects in the Bible really deals with some of the the things around generosity and giving and obedience and um, the temptation of money and just a lot of these different subjects and so I just I had this growing conviction that I needed to without a lot of direction of, of what specifically and so we adjusted the calendar we kind of put it on the Sunday and then I started studying about four weeks ago and you know so I'm. I'm opening the Bible, and I'm I'm going through all sorts of fun stuff. Like, I'm looking at Levitical law, everyone's favorite (laughs) subject, right? A lot of our morning devotions come out of Leviticus. That's fun to say, Leviticus. It's not as fun to read. Uh, You know, and, and I'm studying like the Abrahamic covenant and, and just looking at the the very start of this concept of tithing, which is giving 10%, which starts actually with Abraham giving 10% to this this guy, Melchizedek, which is also a really cool name. I don't know if you guys are looking for boy names, any of you are expecting, but Melchizedek, I'm just going to throw it out there. Uh, it's kind of kind of cool. And, and, and then this idea uh, in the Bible of, of first fruits, which is... Kind of a weird thing, but but Cain and Abel, we see this idea just sort of pop up as if they're already expected to know what it is, and we don't even know where it came from, but this idea that you always give God the first and the best of what you have before you do anything else, and so I'm looking through that, you know, and then, I, then I'm kind of studying in, in the Old Testament, and you know what's really interesting about the Old Testament is that I always thought about the tithe, which means 10% that was established in, in Levitical law, um, that that was sort of the standard for giving, but it's not at all. Actually, there were all these different things. There's tithes, and they bought sacrificial animals and they had a temple tax and, 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 and stuff for the Levite. And when you start adding it all together, it's like 26% of their annual income, uh, went back to God, which I was unaware of. Uh, probably because I grew up in sort of this Christian tradition of like just 10%, 10%, and these you know, move on with your life. Um, but it wasn't that. And then what I began to study was that, which was, I thought, really, really interesting, is all of that stuff, like 25, 26% of their annual income wasn't even considered generous. It was considered obedient. Generosity was everything after that. I got really quiet in here. Um, I'm not saying we're going back to Levitical law, okay? Just... Calm down, it's gonna get worse. And so, you know, then you get to the New Testament and it changes even further because we jump past just simple obedience and we go past generosity and we get into this idea of meeting needs and being sensitive and observant to everything around us and how people are doing and and, and, and sacrificially meeting needs of those around us. And so then it gets kind of strange. And so, you know, I, I really struggled preparing for this message because there's there's so much in the Bible about giving and generosity and the temptation of money and, and, and its undue uh, control that it often has over our lives. In fact, I, I started to just, as I'm reading, realize that it's not, there aren't just hundreds of verses about giving and money in the Bible. I think there are literally thousands of references in the Bible about this. And so I get one Sunday and I was like, God, I don't even I don't even know where to start. I think I erased and deleted more of what I wrote for this sermon than I ended up with at the end. So I just rewrote and rewrote, just trying to get to some sort of sensible, logical, here's something you can take away today. And, and I think one of the things that really bothered me and disturbed me, the more I thought about it, the more I prayed about it, is that um, we just don't talk about. Money very much in American church, unless you go to like Stephen Furtick's church. Um, <laughs> there, there are some churches, right, where, where they talk about money, but we, we don't. Most American churches don't talk about money at all. In fact, I had a brother in law years ago that told me he didn't go to church because, you know, all oh, they wanted, they just want my money. And I was like, really? Because, like, they never talk about money in church. It's like super rare. It's almost like, it's almost like we've made it taboo to talk about money because it might make people feel uncomfortable. Boy, we don't want people to feel uncomfortable in church. Boy, that would be horrible, right? Yeah, let's avoid that subject. And so, so we don't. And uh, man, I think that part of the reason that we don't do it, that, that, that we're worried that it might make uh, people feel uncomfortable, is there's this idea that if we opened up the Bible and read what it actually said about money, that we might feel greedy. Nobody? Yeah. See, that's the thing cuz no one actually thinks they're greedy. I'm pretty certain that I'm not. And we're all pretty certain we're not greedy. In fact, when you introduce yourself, you're not really introducing yourself you're like, "Hey, my name's Jane, I'm pretty greedy." <laughs> it's a thing we don't really think about ourselves really at all. And so I think we need to start with two things before we even open the Bible and take a look at money and giving and generosity and all these cool things. And then first is this, um, the excuse that I oftentimes hear in churches about not talking about giving is this really out of context usage of a verse in Matthew 6, 3 that talks about never let your uh, right hand know what your left hand is doing. And it, and it basically idea that giving should all be done in secret. And that because of that, we should just never talk about it. And it's not okay to talk about it. And the Bible doesn't want us to talk about it with one another. And we should do it incredibly privately. It should be a private affair. And the problem with that is it's not actually biblical. The context of that verse is Jesus looking at the Pharisees who took an act of worship. In fact, they took all of their acts of worship, and they made each one of them very public demonstrations of their own self-righteousness, including giving. And so they took their giving, and they they lauded it over everyone else. They made sure there's a crowd around who knew what they were doing, and how much they were giving, and how righteous they were. And so Jesus rightly looks at that like he looks at all of the other areas of worship in their life, and points out the sin in each one. And when he gets to giving, he says, hey, this was intended to be worship. And worship is an intimate thing between you and God, and therefore, you should be able to do it in secret, and it'd be just as effective as if you did it in public, which is the point he's making to his disciples. But what we've done, because talking about giving makes us uncomfortable, is we said, Jesus wants us to do that in secret, so mm, pastor, let's not talk about giving. And so we don't talk about it. It's been two and a half years since we had a message that even touched on giving or generosity in this church, which is crazy considering how much it's mentioned in the Bible, And that's on us, the pastoral staff, to figure out how to talk about it more often. You're welcome. (laughs) So we just latched onto that to avoid uncomfortable conversations. Secondly, I'm gonna gonna make this sermon so much easier for you, and you're not gonna have to worry about squirming your seats. Let's start here, ready? Raise your hand. Come on, this is a participatory service. Raise your hand. There we go, come on, everybody. All right, if you have your hand raised, you're greedy. Because you're human and we're greedy. It's one of the innate parts of sin that grabs hold of all of us. So here you go. Say it with me. I'm greedy. I'm greedy. There you go. Now you've admitted it in front of everyone. Nothing to be embarrassed about. You're sitting in a pew full of greedy people. So if you need something really salacious to talk about at lunch, you'd be like, listen, I was at church today, tons of greedy people. But you don't need to feel uncomfortable now because everyone here is greedy and you are too, so we're amongst friends so we can discuss it. I want to teach you a little bit about what the Bible has to say about money and giving and generosity from my own struggles with greed over my life and my own lack of discipline and stubbornness when it comes to giving those things over to God. And so. We're gonna talk about uh, the three lies about money in my life. The three lies about money in my life. And we're we're gonna do the whole message today as we read through scripture and kinda look at these three lies. I think these are the most prevalent things we tell ourselves about money that are utterly untrue. And here, I'll give them to you right off the bat so you can put them in your Bolton. Number one, lie about money in my life. If I had more money, I would be more content if I had more money, I would be more content or more satisfied. Number two, if I had more money, I would be more generous. If I had money, I'd be more, if I had more money, I'd be more generous. And number three, money isn't a danger for me because I'm not wealthy. Money is not dangerous for me because I'm not wealthy or I'm not rich. We're going to start in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, a very well-known story. Jesus During his mission, join me there. Verse 17, Mark 10. And as he was setting out on his journey, this is Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now. There's some really interesting things that are happening in this story, and so I want want to just call them out, and I want to kind of look at this story of what's going on in Jesus' mission. Jesus had a lot of people kind of randomly come up to him at different times in the three years of his public ministry and ask him questions, usually challenging him about something, but in this case, uh, this is a pretty legitimate question from this rich young man. We see this story in three of the Gospels, and we have slightly different versions of the account in in which we see a little bit different of the phrasing between uh, his interaction with Jesus. And what I really like is a couple of things. The very first thing is he says, good teacher, when he talks to Jesus and Jesus immediately kind of stops him and goes, why are you calling me good? Only God is good. Don't butter me up, right? What, what is it that you want? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response is, you know the law, you know what you're supposed to do. The Old Testament has the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were laid out before you. You know what it looks like to honor God. It's all laid out. And Jesus is just reciting the commandments to him. And there's a, an amazing interaction here that I don't want you to miss. And it's the response to Jesus when he says, All these things I have kept. Now, uh, let, let me just explain. Does that mean that the man was uh, had perfectly upheld the law? No, absolutely not. Nobody's perfect, we all know that. What it does mean is that this man was so moral and so known for his morality and, it, and for how he attempted to uphold the law that publicly no one would have even challenged him, saying, hey, I'm doing these things. I'm very moral, I'm very righteous, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do all this stuff. And he could say that in public, in a crowd, and people would go, Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. Tom's pretty, uh, pretty normal. He's pretty good, pretty good guy. Yeah, I've got no argument at all. You know, here's the problem. We don't, we don't see this exact interaction in Mark, but in, but in uh, Matthew, if you look up the version in Matthew in uh, verse 20, chapter 19, the young man says to him, all these things I have kept. And then he says, what do I still lack? What do I still lack? Now, I just want you to think about, Why would this guy come to Jesus in the first place? Like, Jesus pushes back at him. Why are you calling me good? What he's really saying is this. Why do you think you lack something? If you're upholding the law, if you're doing all these things right, why would you even come seek me out and ask me? Why would you need my opinion? You already have the law. Why do you need some, some traveling teacher to tell you if you need something to inherit eternal life? Why, why do you think you're, you're even here? I, what is Jesus pushing for? Jesus is trying to say, listen, uh, you know there's a problem, right? Why else would you be here? Hmm? What brought you here today? If you are upholding the law, if you are that moral, if you're following all of the commandments, why are you even here? Because deep down, the man knows there's a problem, but he doesn't want to come out and admit it, right? So we, instead, we put this as a question. Hey, what, what, uh, what, else, what else do I lack? Why? There's something deep down inside of me that's not right, and I've tried to follow all the rules, and I've tried to do all these things, but, but it doesn't feel right. It's at the heart of the gospel is that no matter what you and I do, we know deep down there's something not right and we need Jesus. This guy is young, wealthy, has authority, is morally righteous, he's got everything going for him and he knows something's wrong, something's not right. The lie number one that we tell ourselves about money, if I had more money, I would be content. You know, in, very, in, in, in general terms, if you just simply look at uh, very broad studies about income, uh, people report being happier or more content the more money they make. So if you make more money, you will generally answer, yeah, I'm, I'm a little happier, right? And so you could really easily, in about five minutes of Google searching, uh, make the uh, proposition that if you make more money, you're going to be happier. Because I can find that on Google. I call that Google convincing myself. Right, about five minutes of Google work and I'm like, I'm an expert pretty much, ready to give my opinion on the internet. The, the problem with those studies is they're, they're very surface level. If we really start to dig down into studies of social sciences about how we work around income, it's very interesting. You know, in order to make more money, generally speaking, you need to prioritize money over other things. That's just kind of how that works. Um, And as you begin to prioritize money over other things in your life, here's what begins to happen as we do surveys of people that do that. The moment you begin to prioritize money over other things in your life, according to different surveys that we've done in social science, you begin to get less and less and less and less happy about life. Isn't that weird? So to make money, you've got to prioritize it, but if you prioritize it, you will become less content with life. In fact, the moment you begin to use money as a measuring stick to figure out how you're doing in comparison to others, you actually begin to get very dissatisfied. Huh. CNBC did a study that says this, the more you make at work. So as you take a job that makes more money, you tend to be less satisfied with the job and experience substantially more stress. And that actually is true all the way up the income scale. The more money you make at work, the more stress that you'll have and the less you'll be satisfied with your work. So just hear me because I've counseled a lot of young people and I've been young people, believe it or not, always think if I could just get the promotion, if I could just get the new job, if I could just get the higher paying job, then it would be okay. And I just want to tell you, science says you're wrong. In fact, it's the opposite. Generally, the better, better, higher paying job is more stressful and less satisfying. Now, I titled the message, what if I won the lottery? So what if I didn't have to prioritize money over everything else? I didn't have to work really hard. what if I just, you know, what if I just, I got $50 million from playing the, and the what if I won the lottery? It's actually really hard for me because I don't play the lottery. So that would be very, that would be a miracle. Um, but what if I had a rich uncle I didn't know about in Nigeria? We've all gotten that email, right? <laughs> what if someone just granted me $50 million? What if I just had the money? What then? You showed up one day. Wouldn't I be happier? You know, what's interesting is that um, they did a bunch of studies on human interaction. The richer you are, just the more money you have, the less you actually talk to other humans. The more money you have, the less you socialize with people in general. The poorer you are, the more you feel connected to other people. So when they look at relationships and, and how you interact and engage with people, your own perception, the more money you have, the less you interact, the poorer you are, the more connected you feel to other human beings. Side note, 70% of all lottery winners are bankrupt within five years. Just, I'm sure you'll be the exception. Ecclesiastes 5.10 puts it this way. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. It's vanity. So even if I didn't have to work for it, I didn't have to grind for it, I didn't have to work the 80-hour work week convincing myself that it was all going to be worth it because I was going to make more money, even if I just got bestowed upon me millions of dollars, Social science itself says already I'm going to have some interaction problems I'm going to have some issues. But th- I was looking for a study. I spent two hours searching for this because it's an article I read about 15 years ago from Forbes. And it talked about how at every income level, uh, no one was really satisfied with the income. It didn't matter where you were at. You always felt like you needed more. And I could not find that article. And then I ran across this op-ed piece in The Atlantic. And it is Phenomenal! In fact, I was so excited, I yelled out loud from my office, and I was like praising God. I'm glad no one was around because it looked really awkward. But I I, I, I cut the whole thing out so I could read it to you. They did a study of thousands of people that are millionaires, okay? Thousands of millionaires. And they started asking them questions about how satisfied they were with life. And I just want you to hear what they had to say about this because it's going to blow your mind, and you're going to hate it, and it's going to, oh, yeah, you're going to leave here different. Okay. The research Norton had conducted illustrating this phenomenon is depressing, dispiriting. It is a paper published earlier this year. He and his collaborators asked more than 2,000 people who have a net worth of over a million dollars, including many of whom whose wealth is far exceeding that threshold. So multi, multi, multi-millionaires. How happy they were on a scale of one to 10. And then this is the follow-up question, get ready how much more money they'd need for it to be 10. All the way up the income wealth spectrum, no matter how many millions they had, every single respondent of thousands of millionaires needed two to three times as much money as they currently had in order to be happy at 10 So you can have $50 million and it's not a 10 because I need 150 million to really be happy. I just need more money and then I'd be happy. It's a lie. It's, listen to me, it's a, lie, it's a lie, it's a lie, it's a lie, it's a lie. More money will not satisfy you. You wouldn't be more happy. The Bible tells you you wouldn't be satisfied. Science, social science, culture, rich people actually talking about their lives tell you you wouldn't be happier. Say it out loud with me. It's a lie. It's a lie. Jesus would say it this way, and I want you to hear his words, Luke 12, 15. He says this, and he said to them, this is Jesus, take care, caution, look out, warning, pay attention, and be on guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Why do you think Jesus said that you and I need to be on guard? We we need to look out for greed. He talks about sin in a lot of ways over and over again but there are very few things he says look out. You You better be searching for it because it's trying to sneak up on you greed is one of those things covetousness is one of those things that sneaks up on you nobody thinks they're greedy the moment i started talking about greed today you're like man i wish karen were here because she's greedy not me We think of greed as something that affects people that just have a ton of stuff, that they're always usually a little more affluent than us, a little wealthier than us, have a little bit more than us, and those are the greedy people. We're just getting by, you know? It's sneaky because no one thinks they suffer from it. We justify greed in our lives, covetousness in our lives by statements like, man, you just don't understand all the good I could do if I had more money. I bought into this. Many of you who, who were working and wanted to take that promotion, that new job that meant <laughs> terrible work hours and terrible work life and terrible overall satisfaction, you tricked yourself into taking those jobs with something just like this. Man, we could do so much good if we just had more money. And it's a lie. And it leads into another lie that we often tell ourselves, which is this, if I just had more money, I would be more generous. You ever heard that? Has anyone ever heard that? You know, if I just had more money, I could be more generous. Two of you are honest. Okay. All right. cool. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty says, a faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Would you or I be more generous if we simply had more money? The question is not, would we give more money? It's, would we be more generous? Would we be more generous? ShareFaith did a study in 2015 that says this. People that make $20,000 a year, okay? If you're not familiar with the pay scale in the United States of America, that is below the poverty line. People making $20,000 a year are eight times more likely to give than someone making an annual income of $75,000 a year. Eight times more likely living below the poverty line. According to Virginia Hodgkinson, former vice president for research and independent sector, giving declines by percentage the more money you have. So the bottom 20% of our population give the highest percentile of their income. And it goes down the more money you make. All the way up to the ultra wealthy, we continue to give less and less and less and less of the money we earn. So the reverse is actually true. Not only will you not become more generous if you had more, you'll actually become stingier. The wealthier you get, the more of a miser you become. Welcome to church, Scrooge McDuck. Hope you enjoy it. I may give a larger dollar amount as I become wealthier, but it becomes less and less and less sacrificial in nature because it doesn't impact my level of living or my comfort at all. I think about this statistic. There are 247 million people in the United States that would call themselves or identify as Christian. 247 million, just below 250 million. It's a quarter billion people that say they're Christian in the United States. Quarter billion. 1.5 million people in the United States actually give 10% or more of their income. Out of 250 million. For you math majors, that's half of 1% are obedient to scripture. Half of 1%. So, so listen, when I hear stuff like, America's a, America's a Christian nation. Really? Well, we don't really do the things in the Bible, so that's weird. Right? What, what are we doing? If, if everyone that identified as Christian gave 10%, there would be, ready for this? 165 billion extra dollars for ministry. Now listen, um, I've not done a budget that large. I've never considered what our church would do with an extra 165 billion laying around. I'm just gonna submit it's a lot of good things. There's a lot of orphanages. There's a lot of homes for for single moms. There's a lot of job training. There's a lot, 165 billion dollars? If we would simply do the things we claim the Bible we believe in tells us to do. So we, for, just for just a second, whenever you find yourself sort of a, on your high horse, you really disturbed and mad about this broken, toxic, depraved culture that you live in in this lost country. I just want you to remember that the church gives 0.5 percent back to God. We have some problems in here that we need to deal with, so we can deal with the problems out there. Amen. Those are our problems to deal with. Let's go back to our story. Look what Jesus is saying to him. So, so the rich man comes and he says, teacher, all these I've, I've kept for my youth, you know, I've, I've kept all the 10 commandments. I've, I've done all these things. I've done all this moral work. No one's pushing back on him. No one's going, no, he hasn't. They're going, yeah, this guy's moral. This guy's great. And, and then Jesus tells him, okay, this is a crazy thing. Jesus says, oh man, great. He doesn't even disagree with him. He doesn't even say, no, you don't. I mean, he knows everything. He could have been like, I knew sin yesterday. Like whatever he doesn't. He just says this. Oh yeah. You just lack one thing. It's like the setup question, Jesus. I swear, Jesus has the spiritual gift of sarcasm. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Jesus, like, you just lack one thing. Go sell everything you own, give it to the poor, and come follow me. <laughs> just one thing, huh? I mean, wow. It's a doozy of a one thing you left for me. Why? Look, do, do you realize how, it's not just weird to read it now and go, man, I, I would have a hard time doing that. I, we all would. Um, it's, it's weird even in the context of Jesus' words. Jesus never asks anyone else to do that in the Bible. Do you realize how out of, out of sorts that is? When Zacchaeus comes, uh, Zacchaeus the tax collector, the wee little man and the wee little man was he. Okay, sorry. When Zacchaeus comes to faith and Jesus goes to his house and, and, and Zacchaeus is saved and clearly the, the, the God has regenerated him and he's been saved and I mean like his life is different and he's super excited and he looks at Jesus and he says, everyone that I've defrauded, I'll pay back four times what I defrauded them of and I'll give away all of my wealth up to, up to 50%, up to half of everything I own, I'll just give away. Jesus doesn't go, oh, about halfway there then, huh? <laughs> That's what, 50%? Well, you got to get to 100%. Jesus doesn't even argue with him. He's like, this is great. Go do it. Jesus never holds anyone in, in his mission to this standard of selling everything you own and leaving. Like, no one. Why this guy? Why all of a sudden this standard? It just seems like it's out of nowhere. Like, Jesus, this is kind of a high standard. If, if listen, if like membership at res was like, listen, I'm glad you took the class, but you only lack one thing. It'd be a small membership role. Like, that's a big thing. Let me, let me show you why he does it. It's so, it's so interesting. Do you remember the story of the woman at the well? So Jesus meets the woman at the well, and she's very defensive, and she's defensive for good reasons. We've, we've studied this story before. Um, we know she was likely abused by men, and there are a lot of other issues in her life, and she's a Samaritan, and they're looked down. There's a lot of issues going on. But Jesus is trying to share the gospel. Jesus is trying to save this woman, and so he's trying to engage her in the conversation. She's very defensive, and so finally he says, listen. If you knew who I was, you would ask me for living water. Now, she doesn't exactly get what that is, right? But Jesus is trying to say, like, I would give you something that is so satisfying. And she's still defensive. So what does he do? This is, this is how we know he loves her, okay? And that's, that's why that, that phrase in Mark is so important is when Jesus engages this man, it says, he looked at him and loved him. Okay. He looks at the woman at the well and he loves her and he says to her, go get your husband. Now you read the story, If you're familiar with the story, you realize like that's a, whoo, Jesus is just like, Jesus, come on man. He's on 10 all the time. Settle down Jesus. And she's like, I'm not married. And then he calls her out, right? And he's like, you're right in saying you have no husband because you had five husbands and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. And you're like, this is a Jerry Springer moment. <laughs> the test came back and you aren't the father. I mean, like it's, like, what is Jesus doing, right? And what is, he, what is he trying to push in on? He's saying, you I'm trying to give you living water, but living water for you, your dependence, your hope, your satisfaction, your contentment, your faith is in human relationships. And you think if you could just find the right man, if you could just find the right guy, that it's going to fix everything. And you're really going to be satisfied and you're really going to be content, but that's not working. Do you understand? he's looking at the rich young ruler and he's saying, you're trying to be moral. You're trying to be self-righteous. You're trying to follow the law. You've earned all this money. You've attained all this wealth. Do do you realize this man is generous? Do Do you realize the rich young ruler is giving away all kinds of money because in order to follow the law, he would have, he would have tithed. He would have had temple taxes. He would have bought the sacrifices. He would have supported the Levites. He would have been giving away a ton of money. He's not a miser. He's not a Scrooge. He's actually giving a lot of money. He's the biggest tither in the church. And Jesus goes to him and says, you're greedy. What? You're going to need to sell everything. Give it to the poor and come follow me. <clears throat> what? Jesus is saying, do, do you understand what living water is? Do, do you understand where your, for the rich young ruler, the reason he left away, he left grieving and sad and distressed is he had more faith in his money than he had in Jesus. And he believed the lie that that money, that material possession, would lead him to satisfaction and contentment. And yet he knew it wasn't. That's why he was standing before Jesus in the first place. If he was already content, if he was already satisfied, he would have never been standing there. And Jesus is pushing on him. He wasn't generous because possessions were his idol. And he misses Jesus and salvation standing in front of him because of it. You see, the safeguard for you and I against materialism, against greed, against this idea that money will fix our problems, because ultimately the reason that we we put our fists around money so tightly and we don't want to talk about it and we don't want to let it go is this idea that I can control my own future if I just have enough money. And I want to be in control because I make a great God. It doesn't work out very well. And so the standard of giving in the New Testament becomes sacrificial. In fact, the whole biblical precedent of sacrifice is this. It's that you have to have an open hand so that as God blesses you, you begin to come to this realization that not everything that God puts in my hand was meant for me to consume like a glutton. Some of what God puts in my hand is for me then to bless others with, but as long as I'm holding so tightly onto the things that God gives me, He can never actually put anything else in my hand, anyways, because I got fists all the time. The standard for generosity in the Bible is sacrificial. Even King David got this. You go all the way back to 2 Samuel, King David needs to make a sacrifice. And there's a guy there that, that basically gives him what he needs to make the sacrifice. And he's like, no, 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 I gotta pay for it. And he's like, I'm giving it to you. Just, you know, and he's like, no, 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 listen. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord that cost me nothing. What is he trying to say? Generosity has to impact me or it's not really generosity. If I had more money, I'd be generous. You wouldn't. I wouldn't. You might give more money, but everything about scripture, everything statistically about humanity says more money wouldn't make you more generous. More money wouldn't make you more generous. And the last one is this. Money isn't a danger for me because I'm not wealthy. Money isn't a danger for me because I'm not wealthy. I just want to call out a couple things. This is one of the few things that Jesus constantly talks about when he talks about money is that it blinds you. He talks about a vision or the eye or visual things, uh, or, or it being sneaky and creeping up on you over and over again. All of his references about money and materialism and covetousness are actually these, these illusions and illustrations and references to the idea that money has this blinding distortion effect that you can't see clearly when money is involved. And when he talks about these warnings, we oftentimes read this and we we read them say rich or wealthy and we think, well, that's, I don't have to worry about that because I'm not rich. He's clearly not talking about me. But understand that Jesus and his disciples lived in abject poverty. They owned nothing. They walked everywhere. They slept wherever they could. Many times outside in a home someone might grant them a place to sleep. They ate when they could, when they were blessed with it, when they had a little bit of money, they owned nothing. Everyone to them that owned things was wealthy. So if you're wondering if you're rich or not, do you own anything? Anybody here own something? Yes? Congratulations, you're rich. You're wealthy. So this is for you. The the moment you own things, those things can become idols in your life. So, so then the question for the believer is, if it's sneaky, distort, if it blinds me, if it distorts my vision, if it creeps up on me, if Jesus is saying, watch out, how do I do that? How do I safeguard against this thing that seems to be so subtle and so sneaky in my life? And and, and, and this right here, this question of how, how do I safeguard is where the church has just failed you by not having these conversations really well. They've hurt you, they've hurt me. Because if we were really willing and open to talk about these things as a church body, not just from the pulpit, but all the time, then we would ask for things like accountability. That would be a normal thing to ask for accountability. The idea that it's not a normal thing to ask for accountability is actually the dangerous part. And and, Guess what? It's not always been this way. This is a very American church thing. It has not been this way for long. I went back, I heard this story years ago, back in the Puritan days, in the early days of even the United States, before it was the United States, in in the pilgrim days, they had church guidelines for greed. So the church, each church would get together There are stories about this. They had a guy um, that they brought up and rebuked in front of the church for church discipline because he had decided to make 4% profit on his goods and the church had all together agreed that 3% profit was okay, but 4% would represent greed. 4%, have you met Amazon? And they, it was a voluntary agreement, not, not like a hard, like they all said, hey, we, we want to watch out for greed. We want to be careful. We should put some guardrails on that. What should that number be? And they all kind of settled on 3%. And then when someone didn't do it, they talked about it. Well, that's amazing. They did something about it because they wanted to be careful. So how do, how do we do it? How do you and I do it? Do, do we need to bring your tax returns in? It got really quiet that is so weird. How do we do it though? What is the, Jesus is going to give us a couple things here that you see in the story that I want you to look at about idolatry and ways we can safeguard. And then I'll just give you some very plain, very simple things that you and I can do, very like just kind of logical stuff. Here's the first thing. Because it's sneaky uh, because of how subtle materialism and covetousness and greed is, uh, because of the way Jesus talks about it, it, it when to look out for it, you and I need to assume at all times that we're under the influence of money. You're under the influence of money, meaning already in your life, Possessions, materialism, money, things like that, are already having an influence on you. The question is not, do they have an influence on you? The question is, how much of an influence do they have on you? In fact, if in your mind you're thinking, man, this is really not a problem for me, it's a problem. That's the red flag. The fact that you don't think it's a problem is actually the red flag. If you're like, eh, it's not really my thing, it's your thing. So number one, Assume you're under the influence of money like the rich young ruler was and couldn't figure out why it had such a pull on his life. That's number one. Number two, in our story, there was absolutely a rich young ruler that was the perfect example for us. It just wasn't the guy with all the worldly possessions. You see, there was a rich young ruler in the story who gave up absolutely everything in order to come to earth. All of the riches of heaven, all of those attributes of God, all of the equality with God. He didn't tithe his blood, he gave it all. He didn't give us 10% of himself, he gave everything. And so there is absolutely a rich young ruler who left heaven, left riches for you and I to become the example that we're looking at. the answer is absolutely in Jesus. Now, how do we practically uh, uh, respond when it comes to our life? We still uh, live in 2022. Maybe you have a family, you have a job, you have bills to pay, you have a a rent or a mortgage. Who knows, right? How How do we actually do this? We don't live in New Testament times. I'm not telling everyone here that the way to fix this is to get some sandals, sell everything that you own. And become a traveling missionary, hoping people will keep you in their house. That's not at all what I'm saying. God may call you into the mission field in that fashion. I think for the rest of us, we have to put a plan together. And here's what I mean by that. In a lot of other areas in our life, if you told someone in your small group or or someone in the church you were struggling with something, the church would appropriately respond pretty well If you said, um, and I've watched, I've been part of these teams and groups, and and if you said, man, I'm really struggling with pornography right now, the church would rally around you. Man, we'd be like, oh, dude, we would pray for you. We would put accountability software on your phone. We would put accountability partners in your life. We'd be texting you, um, encouraging you, checking in on you, praying for you, rallying around you. We would mobilize a group of people because you said, I'm struggling with this sin. If you said, I'm struggling with alcohol, if you said, I'm struggling with, with drugs, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm struggling, any of those things. If you admitted that in, in just a, a very vulnerable point where you're talking to some brothers, and sisters in Christ, the church would rally around you. What's your accountability plan for your money? It's the most dangerous thing in the Bible. Money and pride are the two most dangerous things that we see described. So what does the accountability plan for your money look like? What does the accountability plan for your generosity look like? What's the plan for greed, to make sure greed doesn't get its hooks in you? And this is where the church has not done a good job, because we have to normalize that conversation so that we can have it with one another. Because the fact that it's really weird to even say I might take out my tax returns or take out my bank statements and have put them in front of another brother of Christ and have them go through them and ask me tough questions, the fact that that sounds weird is a problem. Because it shouldn't be weird should be normal. It should be no different from me lining up any other type of accountability in my life because I love Jesus and he's worth it. So let me just ask you some really basic questions. Flip over your bullet. You can write these down. These are for you to ask yourself or your spouse, your significant other, your accountability partner, however you like to do this. Question number one, what percentage of my income am I giving away? What percentage of my income am I giving away? I don't know what it is, you know what it is. Maybe, maybe you gotta go look it up. Maybe you have no idea, that's actually even scarier. What percentage of your income are you giving away? Did did you ever notice, this seems like this human condition, that no matter how much I make, I spend it all? That's super weird. Like I spend it all and then I get a bonus and it's gone too. I get promotion, I get a pay raise, and it's gone too. At what point did we learn that the way we should live is to spend 100% of everything we get? that seem kind of weird? Like, why don't we spend 70% of what we get? But, we, but almost no one does that. Look at the statistics. So what is the percentage of my income that I'm giving away? Number one. Number two, number two. If it's not 10%, and I would submit to you that biblically 10% is probably the floor. Like to find a a biblical justification of giving away less than 10% is going to be very difficult to do. In reality, most of what we're going to find in the Bible is way more than 10%, like huge amounts more. So let's just say 10% is the floor. If it's not 10%, if I I look at my finances and I'm not, how can I aggressively move toward 10% this year? Now here's what that's going to mean. I'm going to have to figure out what kind of sacrifices I'm going to have to make in my life in order to do that. Because let me just submit this to you. If you could go from whatever you're giving away today to 10% and make zero sacrifices in your life, holy cow, that's not even generosity yet, right? We're still giving off the excess because generosity is going to be me consciously giving up things so that I can bless others with it. Giving up things so that I can be obedient to God when it comes to generosity. And then, whatever that plan looks like as you begin to look at it, how are you going to hold yourself accountable to do that? Who are you going to put in your life for accountability so you can begin to have someone looking out to ensure that greed doesn't get a hold of you? Um, I, let me just give you a couple stories about giving from my own life that'll be really I think helpful I, I always I mean just years and I grew up in a church in which tithing was just like the super regular thing um, I grew up in a church that had these envelopes where you actually got a score on Sunday morning based on the number of boxes you could check and one of them was if you brought your tithes and offerings and so like I love to check the little box and be like <laughs> look how moral I am no no you do that okay cool um, and even though I, 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 I grew up understanding that, that tithing and giving was obedient, and even though I grew up where my, my mom and dad saw like literally financial miracles happen because of how faithful they were giving growing up, I, we grew up under the poverty line. I still, I still, the moment I got out on my own, did not tithe at all because I thought I didn't have enough money, which was nuts. And so it took years for God to finally work on me enough to even start giving. And then when I started giving obedient, I realized, man, that wasn't actually as hard as I had made it out to be. And that's when God really started doing work. That's when God started doing stuff in my life that was just radical. And so I, 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 I distinctly remember, this is now years after uh, my wife and I finally got to the place where we're tithing regularly and we're trying to figure that out and be obedient with God and we're, we're writing our tithing and offering checks before we, we, we ever even uh, plan our own stuff. So we're trying to, for it to be the, the first fruit of what we do and, and we're feeling really good about that. And then God's like, oh, you <laughs> thought you're doing well. We had a building campaign. We had this campaign for giving where there's this need and the whole church is praying over it for about a month. And so we're, we 're praying but we 're praying separately, and then, for whatever reason, after like four weeks of praying, God gives me this number that 's one of those like that I, I clearly ate bad Chinese food last night, like one of those numbers, one of those numbers you 're like there 's no way that 's even possible i couldn 't live if we did that and I, and so Maybe one of the scarier moments of my entire life. Four weeks in, praying, we're right up on the date where we're supposed to do this, this commitment. If, if, if God's leading us, we're supposed to do a commitment, and I don't even want to talk about it, and so I look at my wife, and I go, hey, have you been praying about this? She's like, yeah. I was like, what number do you get? I'm, I'm looking for any excuse at this point. She gives me the exact same number, and I'm like, oh, no. because I know what that means. It means God's like, do you trust me? Am I worth it? And I'm like, yes. (laughs) Let me just, for any of you that have not experienced this in your Christian walk, somewhere in your life, multiple times and it won't always be about finances it'll be about jobs it'll be about careers it'll be about relationships it'll be all kinds of things God's going to call you into something that is so incredibly scary it's basically him saying jump don't even look down because I'm going to catch you and you're going to have a choice You're you're going to know it's God and you have a choice stay comfortable or live a contenting satisfying exhilarating crazy I have no idea what God's going to do tomorrow life and I'm just going to I just want to encourage you Take the leap, take the leap. You will never look back and go, I wish I played it safe ever. It is phenomenal and it is so scary. Like if I didn't have people around me that I got to go to and go, dude, God's calling me into some crazy stuff and they're like, good brother, I wouldn't have done it. I needed somebody in my corner to tell me to do it. And I'm telling you right now, do it. It is amazing. John Wesley, the famous preacher, said this, money never stays with me. It would burn me if it did. I throw it out of my hands as soon as possible, lest it should find its way into my heart. I want you to think about the irony of how God decided to fund his church. Did- God led a million Israelites around the desert for 40 years. No one had the tithe to do that. He just rained manna out of heaven. They were fine. If God had wanted to, he could supply every Christian church in the history of Christian churches with money that would just magically appear in the offering plates if he felt like it. But he didn't. Instead, what he said is the only way that churches are going to be financially viable is if the people that make up the actual church go through the heart change that is necessary to be generous. And that's really important because I have uh, been part of and experienced sister churches who've uh, sold assets. I know of a church right now that sold a very uh, expensive piece of property that had just gone up in value over the years. And so they got millions of dollars for it. And so it's funding their bills. And their church has never been more unhealthy. Because the financial windfall did not come from the hearts of the people in the church. For a church to be healthy, both things have to be true. It needs to be financially healthy, but it can't be financially healthy if, if, listen, if the people in the church are not being pulled and stretched into sacrificial generosity inside the church and in the pews. Does that make sense? It matters, it matters. Until you and I learn to live generously the most dangerous thing that could ever happen in our lives would be for us to win the lottery. Until the little bit that God has given us, he has taught us how to live and steward well with an open hand, generously looking for people to bless with what he gave us. The worst thing that could ever happen to us is for us to have 10 times more, 100 times more. We would ruin ourselves with it be like giving a toddler a sword (laughs) instead what we're desiring for from Jesus is the heart change where we learn to live in such dependence on him that it wouldn't matter if we had any money or not So here's what I wanna ask you to consider today. Uh, Rachel's going to play a song that we're gonna sing. Uh, And I just wanna ask you this question. Do you know Jesus to be worth more than anything in this world? Do you know that? Do you know it both in your head and in your heart? Do you know that? That he's better than any amount of money that you could get? If you don't know that, would you like to? Would you like to meet someone who has for you what is living water? It is a contentment, a satisfaction that is greater than anything else that you will ever experience. Better than any of those fleeting rewards that you might be able to stumble upon. Better than than any amount of money you could get or any possession that you might be able to buy. If you don't know him that way, I'm going to invite you to come up as our prayer team is up here today and just talk to us about what it looks like to put your faith in Christ and follow him.